0: to listen to a sermon
1: from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom.
0: Well, we are at the final instalment of our friendship series in February nice and alliterated for you. Uh, We've been considering together the great thing that friendship is, how you make friendships, how you deepen them, what you do with the difficulty of friendships when they turn sour. And this evening what I want to look at, to finish off, is how we can take our friendships and take our words in friendships and powerfully and deeply speak into the lives of those around us. I wonder how you think your smartphone has changed the way you talk to people. There's some very interesting research around about this at the moment. Uh, One of them is about this thing called app mentality. You know those pretty apps you have that sometimes when you touch them are instant and beautiful and amazing and yet another you touch them and they seem to not open for an hour and you throw your phone across. The floor. Uh, We've been trained for instant success with apps, instant fulfillment of the thing that we need in the moment we need it. And what's happening is that is slowly taking over our mentality with people. When we come to people and we touch them, we expect them to be instant in fulfilling us as well. Some research searches say that even the presence of Uh, on the table of a phone at a coffee shop between two friends can alter the conversation. Because all of a sudden, either friend has a way out. They can go to Google, they can go somewhere else and escape the thing in front of them. And what's kind of slowly happening is that space where you can actually be fully present to the other person and then speak meaningfully into their life is slowly fading. And we're losing the skills to do that properly. But behind that might be a fear. I think sometimes we're afraid when we meet someone in need that we might not have the right word to say. Or maybe that the word we say would be so ill-received that we end up rejected. Or maybe on the flip side, we feel so self-sufficient that we don't really want other people to speak into us, because that would mean revealing part of who we are. In the midst of these issues, I think our passages today can speak a bit of clarity. What we see in these passages is both what uh, these conversations could look like and the significance of them. One we're going to look at with uh, Jonathan and David and the other with Tim and Paul. And just to let you know, there's one little quirk to this sermon And that's that in the middle, between those two points, Sally's actually going to come up and do some application for us. Because she's incredible at the thing we're talking about this evening. And it's right for her to speak into that, just to let you know that that will come up in the middle. So first thing, what does it look like to have a type of conversation where you speak into someone's life? Have a look at 1 Samuel 23, uh, verse 7 and following. What you get here in this moment in Samuel, uh, we've kind of time traveled from last week. Last week Jonathan was dead, and this week he's still alive. Hope you picked up on that. Little test for if you're awake. Um, and what we see here is maybe the last conversation that Jonathan and David have. Well, at least it's the last one recorded. What we see in the surrounding context is that David is being pursued by Saul. He runs to a city called Kalea and he, he saves them from, uh, from the hands of the Philistines. But as he's there, Saul looks on and says, oh, I'm going to get you there. God's delivered you into my hand. And, and he comes down and the Calites are going to hand him over and David flees again. And at the end of the passage, he's pursued once more and only narrowly escapes. And it's in that middle moment between the two pursuits, when in verse uh, 15, we learn uh, David knows that Saul is coming definitely to take his life. Now, all of a sudden, Jonathan appears, almost out of nowhere in the narrative, and speaks a word incisively into David's circumstances. Three things I want you to notice about this little encounter between David and and Jonathan. The first is that this moment, as you look at it, just seems like a pure gift, doesn't it? I mean, Saul is so relentlessly pursuing David that he will kill him on sight, and yet he can't seem to find him. But somehow, Jonathan can. And not only can he find him, but he delivers him a piece of knowledge from Saul's own hand that Saul even knows that David will become king. This unlikely friendship, you begin to see, has a divine hand behind it, doesn't it? This friend who's able to appear suddenly in the wilderness at the time when everything is hanging in the balance. What a gift from above is such a friendship! But the second thing is, notice Jonathan's intention here. Notice the purpose with which he comes. Look in verse 16. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Why does he come? To hang out, sword practice. He comes to lift David's gaze. You can imagine it, can't you? The mentality of David at this point, just unable to sleep, he felt so pursued and alone. He's just been abandoned by people he saved. He's had to hide his family off in a faraway town just so they're safe. And Jonathan comes purposefully to lift his gaze above what is happening, to what is actually happening, to help him find strength in God. The thing running through this whole narrative is the word hand. You might have noticed that, and that's fine. It's a bit weird. But the question on everyone's lips is, will will, will Saul lay his hands on David? It's repeated again and again. And Jonathan appears. And what does he do? He helped him find strength in God. Actually, it reads, he helped strengthen his hand in God. Jonathan comes when the question is lingering above his life, whether God will let him die or not. And Jonathan intentionally walks into the situation to speak the word that he needs to hear at that exact time to lift his gaze not into the hands of Saul, not thinking about human things, but God things. Because he will endure, his hand will endure in the power of God as God's Messiah. And Jonathan comes intentionally to lift his gaze to it. I don't know if you are that intentional with your friendships, if that's something you do with the people around you, if you want to step into their lives and speak in that way. I have one friend who does, and he does it almost relentlessly. He's always texting me and emailing me and telling me things. It's amazing, to be honest. I was even at his birthday party the other day, and he slipped me a three-page letter describing the good things God had done through me to him and lifting my eyes to God. Do you have a friend like that? Are you a friend like that? Who gives words intentionally to lift other people's gaze to God, to the strength found in him. We're a culture that lives on the horizontal. But we are to be people who draw each other to the vertical, to our God. But the third thing to notice here is exactly what Jonathan says. Did you notice that in verse 17? He says, don't be afraid, which is, happens so often in the Bible that it's hard to count. And don't be afraid is a fine thing to say, but it can be quite hollow and empty, can't it, when you're really in pain? Jonathan's isn't empty, though. What does he say? He says, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. That's the question lingering above things. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. What does he say to him? He reminds him of God's promise to him. God's promise is that he is God's anointed. And that one day he will be king. He will be God's king. Saul isn't going to lay a hand on him because God's hand is all over him. And has already anointed him for the task. Jonathan speaks into David's heart the promise that he he needs to remember at this desperate time. He even paints it so vividly, doesn't it? He, he says, I'll be your lieutenant. Can't you picture it? You're on the throne, I'm there. So vivid is he showing it to his friend. Doesn't even? It's not even that he just says it even. In verse 18, he almost enacts it. He once again makes a covenant with David. That unfailing commitment of two people to one another, that friend's can make, And in a moment when everyone else deserts David, Jonathan says, you can trust me. In the same way that he speaks of God's faithfulness, he embodies it. By word and action, he says to David, you can trust your God to strengthen your hand and to prevail. What does it look like to have this type of conversation? It's to speak into the heart of the people around you the promises of God. The promises of God's Messiah. Is that something you want to do? We're going to take a moment now with Sally to contemplate that a bit further. She's going to come up and talk through actually practically How would you go about making those conversations happen?
1: Thanks, Matt. Um, It is true that um, over time God has given me opportunities uh, with friends, with people I know well, with people I don't know um, quite as well, um, to speak words to them that enable them to be strengthened in God. I'm sure that you have also had many of those um, opportunities, Uh, but as Matt has said, these are just some of my reflections um, of what I've learnt over time, and I'm still definitely learning. So I have um, three precursor conversation principles, and then three conversation tips uh, to run through um, before I hand back to Matt. So enjoy the gear change in the sermon, and here we go. Uh, the first thing that I've learnt, uh, and possibly to state the obvious, is um, to pray. Um, before I have tried to get into the habit of um, before I spend time with friends uh, to pray that our time together will be edifying and uh, that we would build each other up in Christ. We never quite know when these conversations might come up or come our way, so. Um, having prayed about it beforehand is really important. Um, I also pray um, often during the conversation that I'm having, uh, if, if the conversation arises. There are um, most moments um, when these things come up that um, I actually don't have any idea what to say, um, so some quick you know, silent prayers to God and um, to guide me and give me wisdom um, are really powerful. And it's a reminder to me that uh, God's spirit lives in all of us and is um, able to give us wisdom um, from God's word to help our friends. So the first thing is pray. Second thing, um, I've learnt to remember my neediness uh, and to come with humility to any of these conversations Uh, remembering that I need Jesus just as much as the other person and I'm just as needy of friendship uh, and advice at different times is really important Uh, and knowing this I think puts us all on a level playing field so it leaves no place for um, being judgmental or proud. The third thing I'd say is, uh, as a precursor conversation, um, we need to in order to earn the right to speak into people's lives, we need to actually demonstrate that we genuinely care about them. So taking opportunities just to get to know a person, uh, what they're about, um, uh, enables us to uh, build up trust. I think if people can trust us with the small things, then they're able to uh, be vulnerable and uh, ask about the bigger things. So they're the pre, three precursor conversation uh, tips. They are prayer, being humble, and demonstrating that we care. Now, when uh, a conversation does arise with a friend, um, the first thing that is um, extremely important is to listen. Uh, that might sound um, simple, but... Um, Listening properly to the situation that is actually there uh, is really important. And as Matt said at the very start, um, our age now with um, social media gives us a shorter attention span, I think. But we can often go into a conversation assuming that we know what someone is going to say or what the solution is. And I think that doesn't care for them genuinely or hit the mark with um, the solution that um, they're looking for. Second thing, after listening properly, is when you have the opportunity to speak, you have something to say that their non-Christian friends do not. Um, In some ways, uh, this is the point of tonight's sermon um, and thinking about this spiritual act of friendship, aspect of friendship, sorry. Uh, The unique and beautiful thing about spiritual friendships is that we have the opportunity to speak in a way that strengthens our friends in God. We have something to say that our non-Christian friends don't have. Um, And sometimes, as Matt has alluded to, we aren't confident to speak. Um, And this can be for all different reasons. We might be tempted to think that if we haven't experienced the same thing as the other person, um, then we can't say anything at all. But over time, I'm learning that there's always something that we can say about God or Jesus um, or his spirit uh, that will console and direct people's gaze to him uh, even if it seems like one small simple thing and I think if we've listened and we've understood well we'll be able to point them to God uh, in a sincere and a humble way without it seeming um, token or trite so we've got listen well um, say something that their non-christian friend can't say and when we do have the conversation, uh, yeah, when we do have the conversation and the chance to speak, um, make it about God. Have a go at reminding people of a promise that God has made, um, or an attribute of His character that will uh, lift their eyes and their hearts back to Him. Uh, pray as you're thinking about it um, about uh, what could God bring to mind uh, that will help. Um, remind someone of a promise of God, something that will matter in the situation that comes from him, to console or direct them. And a real simple example that I've had uh, not too long ago when, uh, was when I was speaking to a friend about some uncertainties that I had, um, about some decisions I was making for the future. And of course this wasn't just a factual conversation, I was being vulnerable um, and exposing some of my fears and anxieties that came with it. After having a chance to share it uh, with her, she simply said, good thing God has all these things in his hands. Now that's really simple, isn't it? I know that in my head. But uh, it is exactly what I needed to hear at that time and it helped me to move my eyes from myself uh, to be lifted. My gaze was lifted uh, to gain perspective again uh, of God's control. Um, So I knew that promise in my head, but at that moment and in that time, I needed to hear those words from the mouth of a friend. And another question that I ask uh, in my mind is, what is it that Jesus gives that can console in this situation? We can point people to Jesus in a real way by showing them how he meets their particular need at a time. So uh, just to give you some examples... When people are struggling with guilt from sin, we can say, you know, Jesus has actually forgiven you of that and remembers it no more. You can let him lift the burden from you and set you free. When friends are caught in the battle with a particular sin, we can give them hope by saying, remember Jesus has defeated the power of sin, so it no longer has to be your master. Um, The spirit living in you gives you power to overcome. And I'll walk and pray with you um, through this struggle. In grief or suffering, we can speak into people's lives by saying, um, Jesus knows your pain. He's able to draw near to you uh, and be the comfort your heart needs right now. Maybe one more example might be uh, if our friend is struggling with uh, identity or acceptance, we can remind them of the security they have uh, in being fully accepted by God in Christ, um, which takes the pressure off human approval for them. And of course, there are a myriad of um, ways that Jesus consoles us um, from giving us real strength and hope, acceptance, identity, the list goes on. Um, But as I've said, if we've prayed, if we've listened well, shown care, And out of a place of our own neediness and humility, God will enable us to speak these words to our friends in their time of need uh, and enable them to find strength in God. Uh, Just a final point to come full circle is, uh, if you have opportunity to pray together with the person, um, do that. Uh, Apart from prayer obviously being really important and powerful, I think it's a really great way to show the other person that you have actually listened And you're also also holding out hope uh, or walking with them through this situation. Uh, So just quickly to recap, before I hand back to Matt, I've said, uh, pray, um, what have I said? Pray, be humble, demonstrate that you care, and then listen well, say something your non-Christian friend can't say, and make it about God. Thanks, Matt.
0: And staff, we call Sally our pastoral ninja. I find very true. Go talk to her later if you want to catch up with any of those details that she's been saying. Well, we've looked at what it looks like with David and Jonathan to speak into someone's life, and Sally has just really beautifully nutted that out for us. But why is it significant? Why is it powerful? Why is it important? For that, we need to turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Page 1178. Now, in the same way that uh, we might have the last conversation between David and Jonathan, in this letter we may have the last conversation between Paul and his young associate, Timothy. Paul is on death row, soon to be beheaded as he was. And these are some final words. I think as we look at these, we begin to see some of the significance of what we're talking about and the power that it has. Three things to see here in this short little bit. Sorry to use three again. The first is that I want to say that everyone needs a Paul and Timothy. Let me explain what I mean. This is a slightly different friendship to David and Jonathan. They're slightly more of a peer-to-peer sort of thing. In this case... Paul is more operating as a mentor and Timothy a mentee. That's why you get really beautiful, affectionate language like verse 2. To Timothy, my dear son. Timothy is to Paul a spiritual son. He's someone he's brought into the faith. He's seen him grow up. He knows his mother and his grandmother. That gives you so much authority over someone. Uh, and he's even laid his hands on him in verse 6 and sent him out into ministry. He's trained him, equipped him, sent him out for a task. He speaks powerfully into his life to continue to live the life that God has called him to. One of my friend's mums, in a way only a mum can say, used to say, everyone needs a Paul and a Timothy and a Barnabas. Don't you love mums? Uh, You know, everyone needs someone above them speaking into their life. Like Paul to Timothy, like a father to a spiritual son. And everyone needs to speak into someone else's life, the life-giving truth of Jesus. And everyone needs a buddy along the way. That's who Barnabas was. No one knows who he is, but he was just kind of there along the way. Um, we need all three of those things to operate, to live an interdependent, flourishing Christian life. And my question to you is, who are not you letting speak into your life like Paul? Like Paul did to Timothy. I have a friend named Steve who I let do this. He's a cardiologist, he deals with real hearts, not the strange spiritual hearts that I deal with. And that's a perfect difference in our personality. He's all practical, I'm off in the stars. But what I do is, I bring my decisions to him. All my significant ones. And I give him the right to tell me what he thinks. And he always does. He tells me if I'm dreaming, or he'll tell me he'll go with me on the adventure I'm about to set on. But I've given him permission to speak either way and to speak gospel truth to me when I actually need it most. Who are you letting speak into your life like a Paul? And who is it that you are intentionally seeking out to strengthen in God? You might be doing this in kids' ministry. And if you want to do that in kids' ministry, come talk to me after. Maybe you're doing this in your Bible study. Maybe you're doing this in our, what we call our one-to-one Bible reading program, the Philip Project. You can tick a box if you want to get involved in that way. Who are you seeking to grow? Who are you seeking to speak into? Because what we get a picture of here is the, all the different interdependence that happens in the Christian life. Everyone needs a Paul and a Timothy. But the second thing you want to notice here is the way that Paul uses gospel promises to meet Timothy's needs. This is what Sally was talking about before. Beautiful little example here. You see, Paul is about to die. And he says in verse 8, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says, you're going to suffer. Come do it with me. It's quite a scary thing to be told, really to lay down your comfort for the gospel. And Paul knows that. So the next thing he does is he tells Timothy the gospel in a way that will nip the fear at the bud of his heart. Look at what he says. Join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What's the gospel? About the God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He says to Timothy, come and die with me, but know that the thing you're dying for has already destroyed death. Come and suffer in proclaiming Jesus as Saviour and know that if you lose this life, the life you get from him will never end. See what he's doing? He calls him to suffer, but wipes away his fear with the gospel wipes away anything in him and fills him with courage and fire and willingness because the thing he has been given he didn't get because of his merits. And the thing he has been given is indestructible. And so that he can die for it and lose nothing. We, like Paul, are to take the gospel promises we know and speak them into the hearts of the people around us at the butt of their heart where they need it most, in the situation where they are feeling it most, with care and precision, applying what God has done in his son in saving us by his grace. But my question as I read this, and this is the third thing, is why does Timothy even need to hear this? I mean, Timothy's a church planner, He's a bishop. He oversees things. He knows about Jesus. What Paul understands is what is true of all of us and is really the significance and the importance of speaking into each other's lives. He knows that every human heart is frail. After he summons Timothy to action, he gives a couple of examples of different people in verse 15 16. We didn't read this before, but there it is. He talks about figalus and homogenes, people who deserted him, people who were ashamed of him on the one hand, and then of the household of Anisphorus, who instead of being ashamed, ran to him in his chains. Two different reactions. He lays them out before Timothy and says then in chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, It's almost like he's saying to Timothy, you know what, you have a little bit of figulus and a little bit of anisphorus in your heart. You both want to run and you want to take hold. You're both afraid and courageous. You see, the truth is, is that every human heart both hates and loves the gospel. And therefore, every human heart needs to be strengthened by gospel promises, needs to be strengthened in the grace of Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer knows it well. He says, the Christ in your own heart is always weaker than the Christ in the word of your brother or sister. Your own frail heart is weaker than the promise spoken to you. And that's why we need to again and again and again speak powerfully the gospel into each other's hearts so that the parts that hate it die and the parts that love it grow. And that is the great significance of this task. That is its great power. That is its great beauty to frail human hearts. But just as we close, let's consider this. What holds you back? How come we so often don't want this? I remember saying at the beginning how on one hand we were afraid of saying the wrong thing and on the other hand uh, maybe a little bit afraid of letting other people in. I think both of those things have the same fear behind them, actually. The fear of being rejected. On the one hand, we fear speaking the wrong word and being rejected and thrown out by our friends. And on the other, we fear of actually making known who we really are inside and being rejected for the mess that we are. And so we hold back. I was... Reminded as I was reading Mark this week that as Jesus was dying, everyone made fun of him. The soldiers, the priests, even those crucified on his right and his left. He who was the truth was rejected and humiliated in every way we imagine we never want to be. And he was rejected on the cross. So that we could be accepted, but not by men, but by his Father. He takes the rejection we fear to give us the approval that he has. And to the extent that your heart knows that it is accepted in all its mess by the God of the universe, by the blood of Jesus, that you will be free to speak into the lives of others. You see, when you know you're fully accepted, it doesn't matter if you say something wrong because they might reject you, but he never will. And it doesn't matter if you're vulnerable with them and they don't get it because he does. He died for it. And when you know the depths to which you're accepted, then you can speak a more powerful word to those who need it. Friends, take up a word on your lips and speak it to your brother and your sister for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we hold back so much, but you never do. You always give more. And we cannot even fathom that Jesus was rejected so we could be approved by you. Make that sing so true in our hearts that we can courageously speak and strengthen the people around us. To your glory. Amen.